we owe it to them. These are the future generation. If they're brave enough and they say, we want to go to school, we need to support them. But equally, if a girl feels she doesn't want to go to school, let's find other solutions for her. You are listening to Think African, a seasonal podcast engaging African thinkers and doers on what it means to think African. I'm your host, J.D. Ramalapa. Pregnant by Association is a parody performed by the well-loved petite Ugandan comedian Gansima Ann. Get out! Get out! How are you, my daughter? I'm fine, man. <laughs> Do you know your friend who is called Bridget? Yes, she's my best friend. Wonderful. Do you know that she's pregnant? What? Do you know that she has been just out of school for being pregnant? In this skit, she demonstrates most African mothers' attitudes towards teenage pregnancy. Don't pretend that you don't know what I'm talking about. Write down, write down, write down. Do you know that she's pregnant? Bridget is the only friend you have, meaning 50% of your friends are pregnant. Do you? But this humorous depiction of how parents and society at large treat pregnant school-going girls in most African countries is not an exaggeration. Do you know Naka Bridget? Narongo's daughter? Uh, yes, no, She's no, pregnant. They just have from school. She's yeah, you're and this one here is the best friend. Meaning, nearly the chances of <laughs> Because for many school going girls in Africa, getting pregnant often means the end of their schooling career, and with that, any hope for a better future. This was also the case for pregnant school going girls in Sierra Leone. The West African country experienced a pregnancy boon following the Ebola pandemic outbreak between the years 2014 and 16, which left more than 11,000 people dead. In response, the Sierra Leonean government introduced a new law preventing pregnant girls from continuing with school. That is, until Sabrina Matani, a Zambian-British human rights lawyer with over 15 years' experience working with women deprived of their liberty, came in. What was really shocking for me when I was doing this research and working with Sierra Leone activists was just to hear how deep-rooted these prejudices were. I mean, women and men would say things like, if my girl goes to school with a girl who's pregnant, it will encourage her to get pregnant. And that to me was just just shocking because, and it was also just a lack of understanding about what drives teenage pregnancy. There are many reasons why there's a high rate of teenage pregnancies on the continent. The most obvious reason is often sexual pressure, coercion, or rape by male partners or relatives. A lack of sex education in schools, low parental support and communication also means that pregnant girls are twice as likely to die during childbirth as women above the age of 20. More recently, lockdown restrictions to contain various pandemic outbreaks have left many girls vulnerable to sexual exploitation and abuse within their households. But in all of the causes of teenage pregnancies, there's no mention of boys or men who cause the pregnancies to occur in the first place. The girl children are forced to carry this shame on their own. When I was speaking to many of these girls, they're like, you know what, even if we go to school and there's going to be stigma and people make fun of us and say things, we want to go to school. 
we want to get an education and we know that if we're pregnant and we can get an education now even if it's only up to a certain level this is going to set us up better and this is going to help our child once we have a baby it's difficult there's no not a lot of like child support and they themselves were so brave and courageous to like face that and i'm like we owe it to them but in sierra leone pregnant girls wanted to continue with school Many of them would go to great lengths to hide their bellies in order to further their education. Many were victims of rape. What had happened is after Ebola, there was a skyrocketing of pregnancies because, you know, as in many situations like a pandemic, there's a lot more violence. And the Minister of Education in 2015 responded by saying that pregnant girls would not be allowed to go back to school. So he formalized this this practice that had been happening. And so at the time I was working with Amnesty International and we well we started working with many Sierra Leonean activists on this issue and again you know this was something very much led by women's movements in Sierra Leone and really my role was just sort of supporting and trying to bring more attention to this. And one of the ways that we um tried to tackle this was to file a case. And so they went to court. A pool of non-governmental organizations or NGOs including Equality Now, Women Against Violence Exploitation in Society or Waves, the Child Welfare Society and the Institutes for Human Rights and Development in Africa filed a case on the 17th of May 2018 in the Court of Justice of the Economic Community of West African States commonly known as ECOWAS. A year later in December 2019 the court made its final judgment. Um, and the court ruled that yes you know this ban on on pregnant girls from going to school was discriminatory it violated their right to education it violated their right to non-discrimination and we had this positive judgment but what did that mean many countries don't enforce these judgments you know what was Sierra Leone actually going to respond and so again you know it was continuing the advocacy by activists themselves in Sierra Leone to get the government to try and enforce this fortunately there'd been a change of government so we didn't have the same ministers in place and there was a new minister who was actually someone i knew and and really respected david zenge he's um an mit grad he's you know uh, he was actually head of the directorate for innovation and then he became minister of education so we had all this hope that here was this you know forward thinking African man was he going to overturn the ban after being elected into office in March last year president Julius Madabio with the education minister David Moinina Sange announced that pregnant girls should be allowed back in classrooms and what really enc- encourages me about this is that you know two of the people who are leading this are men and not only David Sange the minister of education but a great friend of mine an activist Chenobar and he you know is a feminist activist he's a girls rights champion and we need more men like this you know it's not only a, a women's issues and there are wonderful women working on this issue but they're really leading this and speaking to men and speaking to communities But again I think that just shows the power of the law the law can create this really long standing change and we now have this very positive judgment and there's other countries Equatorial Guinea has a ban Tanzania has a ban Equality Now who filed the case uh, against uh, the Sierra Leonean government have filed a case at the African Court against Tanzania so I'm really hoping we're going to see again more positive legal precedents and more change for girls
Here in South Africa, there's been a, a big debate around sex ed in schools and the large Christian community is feeling as if the government is trying to force queer identity politics down the throats of their children and also providing condoms and contraceptives is also seen as, a, as an encouragement for young people to have sex. How do we deal with this kind of societal problem that mostly deals with mindsets and a way of just um, looking at life and those morality issues and spiritual issues, religious issues? How do we confront these issues? It's tough. I mean, I come from Zambia, which is a, a self-declared Christian country. It's it's very conservative. It's very rooted in religion. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I come from a family of pastors and I, I come from a strong Christian background. So I'm not saying that those values are bad, but I don't believe that we should leave research out of any of this or leave evidence. And I mean, all of the evidence shows that actually by empowering you know young people with the information they can make better and informed choices about their own bodies and their health to try and pretend that that kids are not going to have sex and and kind of give them abstinence as the only option is is not working and we need to look at that and I do think that religious leaders have an incredible role to play in trying to push forward some of these changes and it can be done in a way that they find is respectful um, you can still teach people about, you know, self-esteem and integrity and all of these other concerns they might have or, uh, you know, might be worried about. But, you know, we, we can't leave evidence out of the question. While working in West Africa, Sabrina co-founded Advocate, a non-governmental organization supporting grassroots women to access justice. Advocate works with girls and women caught up in Sierra Leone's often unjust legal system. So I was working in Sierra Leone in the war crimes tribunal and just volunteering in the women's prison. And the needs that myself and three other women lawyers saw led us to, you know, found Advocate. And we've always shaped what we do based on the needs we see. So uh, primarily it's providing legal representation, but also providing support to women when they are in detention, whether it's through you know, providing um, feminine hygiene products or support for babies. And then as women were released, we realized we needed to also support women upon release as well. So all the interventions very much shaped by the needs of the women we work with and what they tell us they need. Advocate is the only organization in West Africa providing holistic access to justice through free legal representation, education empowerment and detainee support. And so we focus a lot on policy and advocacy reform. Uh, for example, we our work has led to the creation of two separate um, prison centres for women. Uh, so that can be much more focused on, on the needs that women have, but also trying to do things like uh, push for law reform, push for petty offences. Many women are arrested for many minor issues like owing money and trying to push for laws like that to be reformed. So we're changing the situation that, that women find themselves in. And then lastly always at the heart of what we what we do and I guess this goes back to me saying that I'm a storyteller at heart is to be amplifying the voices of women themselves I mean this is so fundamental and often lawyers are very bad at doing this we want our voices to be heard but not the voices of the people we work for 
And so with Advocate, we've tried to do this through photo stories, through documentaries. We've done a documentary called Kolonko, which really features the voices of sex workers and the abuse they face by the police, but in an anonymous way. There are at least 26,000 sex workers in Sierra Leone. Their journeys into sex work vary, but what they do have in common is a life characterized by poverty, loss and abuse. These are their stories. And this has been really central, I think, to increasing not only the visibility around some of these issues, but allowing people and policymakers to hear the voices of women who otherwise are behind prison walls and, and would not be heard. Working as an advocate for vulnerable women within the justice system has made Sabrina even more passionate about another often overlooked element of justice, money or access to funding. Sabrina says in her line of work, she found that donors or philanthropic organizations were often not responsive to the needs of grassroots organizations. She says, instead of funding an organization's running costs, they prefer to fund specific projects, such as producing a podcast like this one, for example, or let's say they will give you money to buy a sack of rice to feed hungry children instead of resourcing the core or operational costs associated with feeding hungry children. What this means is donors are willing to pay for finished products or well-fed children in this case, but they are unwilling to pay for the cook, the premises where the rice will be cooked, water and lights used to cook the rice, in short, the operational costs that will make the feeding program possible. They will also require organizations to feed the children with the rice they bought within a specific amount of time. For example, they will say you need to make sure that X amount of children have eaten this rice within seven days of us giving you this money. Otherwise, we can't fund you or we will ask for our money back. Which means that if you don't already have other sources of funding or resources to pay someone to go buy the rice, cook it and feed the children, it'll be impossible for you to fulfill their funding criteria. In addition, because many donor organizations are funded by governments who have specific policy objectives in the countries they operate in, it means they will not fund projects which don't meet their very specific, predefined socio-political outcomes. For example, while they could have money to fund starving children, their policy objective might dictate the kinds of children who may qualify to eat, i.e. girl children born to queer couples in rural communities. If the children you want to feed are not girls born to queer couples living in rural communities, then the project won't be funded, no matter how serious or urgent the children's needs may be, because they don't fall within the donor's predetermined policy objectives. So Sabrina has started working to create an alternative to this funding model. So one of the things I've been involved with is setting up this COVID-19 Grassroots Justice Fund. And this is um, an initiative come together by NAMATI, the Legal Empowerment Network, which is a network of over 3,000 grassroots empowerment groups, pathfinders. And we've managed to put together um, half a million dollars, which is uh, going to be released soon this week is the first grants to 30 grassroots justice groups. And it's giving them fast, flexible funding and saying to them, you're on the front lines, you know what the problems are and we trust you. Here's the money. We're going to like support you. And this is a huge problem. I mean, with Advocate, we really struggle to get that kind of funding. And particularly when, 
you know, you're in a pandemic, you're in a situation like Ebola, often donors will say, sorry, you, you can't meet the terms of your project funding, we can't fund you. And this creates a massive crisis. So we need to really change and I think decolonize the way that funding happens. Like all the power generally tends to be in like the global north. And this this is not going to affect change. And I'm really proud to see a lot more African-led funding initiatives. You know, the African Women's Development Fund is absolutely fantastic. This is led, you know, by African feminists themselves. They really understand the challenges, but they're also doing other things like bringing groups together so they can speak about also building pan-African movements and supporting each other and solidarity. And this is a much better model in my mind. Are there other African examples of, um, you know, restorative justice which do not violate human rights and also do not go through the, the Western sort of criminal justice system that we can maybe learn from and apply? I mean, absolutely. I, I think paralegals are an, an excellent example of this. And this was sort of like birthed, I think, in South Africa. And, you know, community-based paralegals are people from the community who can help individuals solve justice problems and often it can be through mediation it can be involving maybe community elders you know bringing the community together and finding a solution that's right for the community and it means taking away taking people away from the the formal justice system unless absolutely necessary and in Sierra Leone you know we've been involved with um through advocate really expanding this network of community-based paralegals across the country and I was really privileged to be involved with other activists and actually um, drafting and shaping the legal aid bill in 2012 which was a really progressive bill and this includes recognition of paralegals as part of the justice system. You know we don't have enough lawyers on the continent to meet the justice gap. Um, a recent report from the Task Force on Justice found that 5.1 billion people lack meaningful access to justice. That's a huge amount. And we need to be innovative. We need to look at other solutions. We need to look at homegrown solutions. And I really believe that paralegals are a key way to help us, to help people resolve justice problems. That's interesting, but it also makes me wonder, you know, um, you know, during COVID-19, we saw here in South Africa, or at least when um, alcohol was introduced after it being banned for some weeks. We saw a really high spike in domestic violence um, cases, and a lot of it happens. You know, you hear some a woman screaming next door, and you don't you don't really want to get involved. And sometimes people don't even take um, issues to the criminal justice system because they say we'll just resolve it within a family. So I'm just wondering, like, how can we strike a balance between those two? Because sometimes by the time the police are involved, the woman is, you know, deceased and it is too late. So how can we strike a balance between community justice initiatives and also making sure that people are truly held accountable for the crimes they commit? That's a really important point. And I think when you look at gender-based violence, this is where the tension comes in, because a lot of people are trying to push the customary justice solution. I mean, 80% 80% of people, particularly on the continent, actually utilize customary justice more than formal justice. But as you said, when it becomes gen- to, comes to gender-based violence, there, there needs to be more of a balance. But I do think that community-based paralegals are a really good option here because it can be someone who maybe you trust, someone from your community or someone who at least understands the issues and can explain them to you in, in a way that you understand or break down this like 
kind of scary informal legalese and maybe support you to go through that process, support you to file a case at the police. I mean, I'm a lawyer and when I've had to go to police stations from Senegal to Sierra Leone to report a theft or something, it it can be really scary and it can it can be really frustrating and actually having someone to support you through that and then someone to actually hold all the institutions accountable. And sadly, I think trying to just depend on that, depend on a lawyer for that is going to be challenging. They're often expensive or they're not accessible. So I think that having paralegals to perform that role is, is one way um, that we can try to respond to, you know, having more accountability for gender-based violence. But again, that's one part of a much bigger part. We need to be empowering women, you know, to be economically uh, empowered so that they can leave situations where often they might feel trapped. Uh, we need to do a lot more work around targeting negative male um, attitudes. So I feel like a one, you know, one-stop solution isn't isn't the, the way to to address this, especially within the the, the um, African context. Like, okay, I support feminism, but I don't think we can actually apply anything with the word feminist in it. So let's talk about what a feminist-led government could look like in a in an African context. I think it's already happening. I mean, you know, the African feminist recovery statement by, you know, African Rising was put out and, you know, feminist movements are already doing this. So like women leaders are actually having a, a feminist response. It's just not always acknowledged. And, and you're right, maybe the word feminist scares people off. But, uh, you know, I'm really fortunate to work with Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, the former president of Liberia, the first uh, woman president and um, as, as part of the elders, and she set up this uh, Amuja initiative, which brings together women leaders, and they've been looking at women-led responses to COVID. And, you know, there's some incredible examples in Sierra Leone. We have the, the first woman mayor, and she's not only been, you know, leading public health messages and, and kind of supporting community responses, but working on longer-term infrastructure and health um, issues which you know are behind some of the the issues we're seeing in the pandemic so you know again many examples from from Rwanda to Ghana African need women leaders are doing this it's just maybe that they're not often recognized and I think it's so central during the pandemic response that we need to make sure that women leaders are involved um, not in a tokenistic way but absolutely in the decisions that are being made and, and taking things forward um, I think we that you know women's leadership has always been central within the continent. It's just maybe kind of pushed back in terms of rhetoric, but really I feel it's always been there. Are there any African thinkers, academics, philosophers, writers that have influenced your life or your career, and um, in what ways? So I've always been influenced by African lawyers. And, you know, even at a young age, when I was 14, you know, I read Long Walk to Freedom by Nelson Mandela, as probably many other teenagers did. But this was so incredible to me because it it centered me that, you know, being a lawyer isn't just about sort of status and wealth, which I think, unfortunately, this is what a lot of the legal profession puts out. But it's really about sacrifice and how can you use the law to kind of shape justice and shape society. And I think, of course, that... You know, Nelson Mandela's life is such a testament to that. It is time for new heads to lift the burdens. It is in your hands now. Next time, we'll catch up with Vitali Mayembe, a musician and activist from Tanzania who put down his guitar to contest the local elections in his home county of Bagamoyo last year. To me and my part, the leadership is to protect the people. 
is, is to go to people to ask them what they need and to go there to present them. I will be meeting people, talk to people, and listen from them what they need to show them, to teach them how leadership has to be. Until then, merci, obrigado, gracias, shukran, asante sana, bye, danke, reale boja. Thank you for listening.